You're listening to The Bible for Normal People, the only God-ordained podcast on the internet. Serious talk about the sacred book. I'm Pete Enns. And I'm Jared Bias. Hi, everybody. Welcome to this week's episode of The Bible for Normal People podcast. And our topic is divine violence, specifically Jesus and divine violence. And, you know, if if regular listeners to the podcast, you'll know that we had a guest on, Brian Zond, a few months ago, who wrote a book, Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God, which looks at this issue. And when I wrote The Bible Tells Me So, aka the yellow book that came out about three years ago, uh, that's the first big question that I addressed. And the reason is because everybody's talking about it. It's it's, it is an issue. You know, why does God seem to have sort of this go-to way of solving problems of, of violent ends and, you know, killing or plaguing or sending you know, soldiers and, you know, attacking you and things like that? Why, why is there so much violence in the Bible? That's a big issue. That's a question that's not going away. Our guest this week is somebody who also has thought a lot about uh, divine violence, and that's Greg Boyd, and uh, a name that I'm sure a lot of you know. He's the co-founder of Woodland Hills Church in St. Paul, Minnesota, where he's a senior pastor. Uh, he's also a professor of theology. He was for 16 years at Bethel University, likewise in St. Paul, Minnesota, and he's written a ton of books. Uh, most recently, uh, two books came out fairly close to each other on the same topic, Crucifixion of the Warrior God, which is uh, two volumes and uh, long. It's about 1,400 pages. And then right after that, the shorter version, uh, under 300 pages, Cross Vision, a more popular version with uh, less technical footnotes and that sort of thing. And, you know, Greg has thought a lot about this, and he has his own uh, unique take on how to address the issue of violence in the Old Testament. And we're going to let him do the talking, but specifically, uh, you know, generally, uh, his, his approach is to read the violence through Um, the cross itself through the crucifixion, which is sometimes called a cruciform uh, approach to reading the Old Testament, uh, which just means a cross-shaped, looking at it through the the violence of the cross and what that might uh, reveal to us and help us understand uh, the Old Testament and its difficult passages about violence. So, I hope you enjoy the episode, and we will see you on the other side. Criteria for being a child of, of God, according to Jesus, is that I disobey the Old Testament command to have an eye for an eye and tooth for tooth. But even beyond that, those portraits of God, insofar as they conflict with uh, what, what Jesus reveals about God. And I can't imagine a portrait more conflicting with what Jesus reveals about God than various portraits that depict God as saying, go slaughter everybody, man, woman, child, infant, animal, uh, and do it as an act of devotion to me. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Bible for Normal People podcast with our guest today, some guy named Greg Boyd. Is that you, Greg? Uh, well, the, the, the title, Normal People, kind of excludes me, but thanks for inviting me. I'm glad to be here. Well, we, we like having abnormal people mm. for normal people. It looks like, yeah, having people like me on makes you look normal by comparison. Almost, that's right. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's what we're aiming for. That's actually for the here. premise of the whole podcast. It's absolutely <laughs> good by how, the name of How to make people look good. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that's what we do. So, anyway, so you're, for, you're uh, coming to us live from Minnesota. Lovely Minnesota. Yeah. Where the Yankees are playing the Twins tonight. Where the twins are going to wallop the Yankees. And they might. It could happen. But I'm just going to say this might be a really short 
podcast interview like five minutes. Is that okay? <laughs> hey, you got a book. Great. See ya. Got to go. Look at the time. I don't know the future is open. I'll grant the possibility that uh, Yankees could win because I, I, I hold to an open future, so it's not predestined. <laughs> hold to an open future. Maybe we can get into that a little bit today, too. But if I was a betting man. Yeah. I'm not a betting man either, so. Well, listen, you know, here, our, our topic today is Jesus and divine violence. You know, that's obviously a big issue. It has been maybe especially since 9-11 again. I don't know. I don't, I don't know what to trace it to, but people have been asking this sort of question. And, you know, Christians get this question too. And how, how do we work through it? So let, let me begin by asking you as a pastor, I can imagine you have some conversations with people either in the church or outside of the church that look at some of the like cruel kinds of things that happen in the Bible and have some questions. Yeah. Um, all the time, uh, you know, that all throughout the 90s and in the first part of this century, I, I just got more and more clear about how central nonviolence is, both to Jesus' kingdom ethic, but also to his revelation of, of God, because he tells us to abstain from violence and to love our enemies, because that's what God does. And the clearer I got about Jesus and nonviolence, uh, you know, the, the more problematic those portraits of God in the Old Testament uh, became. And uh, um, people were, you know, asking questions like that all the time. You know, and it's like, what about you know, when God says in, in, in Deuteronomy, you know, go slaughter them all, everything that breathes, every man, woman, child, infant, and animals. You slaughter them all. But, but make sure you don't kill the trees because the trees haven't done anything wrong, which is kind of bizarre. <laughs> couldn't, that, couldn't that apply to babies? But, um, yeah, that's one of the classic horrific texts. In fact, in, in the concept is, is harem, as I know you know, uh, and it has a connotation of do this as an act of religious devotion. Right. So sacrifice these people, devote them to the Lord by, by, by slaughtering them. Uh, and then, you know, there's one, one troubling passage to representative is uh, uh, Numbers 31, where yes. Moses says, go out there and, you know, uh, take, take a vengeance on the, the, the Midianites. And the soldiers come back, and they only killed the combatants. They kept the women and, and the young boys and the, and the young girls. And Moses is enraged. Um, and says, no, you've got to, you know, well, I'll tell you what, slaughter the women who have had sex, but spare the virgins. You can keep the virgins alive for yourselves. Um, and, you know, in the ancient Near East, uh, being able to take on sex slaves was one of the, uh, you know, the benefits of, of being victorious. And, and sadly, that has crept into the Bible. There's that, that passage there. And at first Moses is enraged that they brought back all the spoils of war. But then he says, okay, let's divide them up and divides them up evenly. There's just a lot of funky passages like that. Yeah, you, said, yeah, you put that very interestingly, Greg. You said, sadly, this has crept into the Bible. And I know what you mean, and I agree with you, but somebody might ask, what do you mean something's crept into the Bible? Isn't it all just supposed to be there? Yeah, well, they're, they're, the reality is, is that, that, and you find this with every book of the Bible, um, you know, God's message, uh, it doesn't come to us in some kind of a pure, pristine, abstract form floating down from heaven down to earth. Uh, it comes in cultural packaging, and uh, the biblical authors reflect, uh, in, in varying degrees, uh, aspects of their culture. And, um, and so the, the practices of the ancient Near East, some of those crept into the Bible. Uh, and, and sometimes the, the way that they conceived of God, uh, that crept into the Bible. And, and so you have, one of the jobs of, uh, of an interpreter is to say, okay, what is the cultural packaging, and what's the message within the cultural packaging? 
Right. So with that, uh, Greg, how do you see it uh, when we are interpreting the Bible? You know, you said the, the job of the interpreter is to see what's cultural packaging and what's the message. But w- wouldn't it be true also to say that we're just exchanging one cultural package, that one back then, for our cultural package? So how do you get beyond that as you're reading the Bible? Like, what are we, are we, is it sort of like uh, we're trying to get to the real meaning of things and that was a cultural package and somehow we can get past that? Or how would you address that? Well, you're asking a million dollar hermeneutical question um, there. Uh, and none of these. what we do, Greg. It's what, it's we, what we do. It's what you're good at. And you can put that million dollar check in the mail. Yes. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, I'll be uh, two minutes after the rapture. I'll, I'll pay it to you. <laughs> um, well, you know, if, uh, I, I argue that. And I argue this in, in my book, Crucifixion of the Way of God, and in a more popular version, Cross Vision, that the ultimate criteria, as we're reading scripture, the ultimate criteria uh, to assess uh, what is and is not cultural packaging uh, is, is Jesus Christ, and more specifically, Jesus Christ crucified. Because I make the case that that Jesus isn't one revelation among others. That's the way a lot of Christians read the Bible, as though you know, the Bible gives us 1,347 different pictures of God, and we're supposed to believe all of them equally. But uh, I, I think the way the New Testament presents things is that, that Jesus is the revelation that culminates and supersedes all of the revelation. Uh, it's like in the, in the book of Hebrews, uh, the first chapter, the author says that, that in the past, God spoke in various ways and various portions. Um, but now uh, he's come to us in his Son, and in the Hebrews, the Christology says that the Son means God in person. Now God comes in person, and in contrast to what happened in the past, the Son is the radiance of God's glory. So when God radiates, it shines like Jesus. Jesus is the shininess of God's shininess, and and the exact representation of his very hypostasis, uh, his very essence. And so they had approximations, and they had glimpses in the past, but now we've got the real deal, the full McCoy, uh, if you see me, you see the Father, Jesus says. And so, insofar as they were seeing truth, it, it looked like Jesus. But they also saw we're, we're you know, seeing a lot of clouds. If you're, if you're outside and you're only getting glimpses of the sun, it, mean, it means it's a pretty cloudy day. And so they had a lot of clouds. Uh, and so, w- w- since we have the full revelation, we can look back now and assess what is and is not consistent with that revelation. In fact, w- w- all scripture is supposed to point to Jesus. Jesus says, it's all about me. And then Luke 24 says, it's all about my suffering on the cross. And so uh, the crucified Christ, I think, is the ultimate criteria by which we assess these things. Okay. Um, let's, okay, we have these problems with the Old Testament. That's, that's helpful. I'm going to, we need to push this Christ angle a little bit more. We've got these violent passages like conquest. You mentioned Numbers 31, which is, the weird one nobody deals with, but it has to be. Uh, you've got the flood story, and you've got basically plague and pestilence and warfare determined by God yeah, against his own people and against others. Corps rebellion, the earth swallows them up, and fire comes down and incinerates them. Now, I know this is another, this is a $2 million question, but you have an angle, you have an approach to that, which involves Jesus pretty heavily. And, and you just started talking about it now. Flesh that out a little bit more, because I think specifically you bring the cross into this mm-hmm. as a way of helping people understand how to come to terms with, I guess you said, the clouds. Right, right, right. Right. 
Okay, well, can, uh, you, could, you could talk for two hours about that. I realize that, but... Oh, thank but, you. I will then. Okay, fine. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. There is a game tonight, don't forget. <laughs> I'm just, if, you don't, if you hear me slam the door, you know why. But. Game trumps Boyd on the cross. Okay, um, uh, look at it. Up until about 10, 11 years ago, I thought I had to defend these portraits of God. And it was... Um, I actually started to write a book on it. Uh, and I got about 40 pages into it. And I thought, man, these, these explanations just don't cut it. Um, it, it was a, intended to be a book along the lines of Paul Copan's It's Got a Moral Monster, which is, I think, the best book out there. It, 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 if you think you have to defend that violence, he does as good a job as you can do. Mm -hmm. uh, but I, I got 40 pages into it, and I thought, these explanations don't work. So I had to do a complete reframe and a do-over, and it took me a while to get to this point. But I began to see something very different when I asked the question, how, and, and once I asked this, it seems like the most obvious question in the world, but I'd never heard anyone ask this before. And it's, how does the cross reveal God? Um, this is the quintessential God-breathed revelation. Okay? The, the, the Christ on the cross is, is the moment where the Father is most glorified. Here we see the clearest expression of who God really is. And so how does the cross do that? Because if you look at the cross just with your normal, natural eyes, from a first century perspective anyways, all you see is a, a guilty, God-forsaken criminal. One of the many thousands that Rome crucified. So how does this... What does the believer see that the unbeliever doesn't see when you contemplate the, the crucifixion? And the answer is, it's not what you see on the surface that reveals God. It's what you, by faith, see going on behind the scene, scenes. Uh, by faith, we believe what Paul calls the message of the cross, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. By faith, we see God, the almighty creator, stooping this infinite distance to become our sin, 2 Corinthians 5.21, and to become our curse, uh, Galatians 3.13, um, and, and, and it's the distance that God crosses out of love for us that reveals the perfection of the love that God is. And that's why John says in 1 John 4, 8, he goes, you know, God is love. He's summarizing what the cross reveals about God. God is love. And then he defines love in 1 John 3, 16 by pointing us to the cross. Here's how we know what love is, that Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, so also we should lay down our life for one another. So, you know, do the math. God is love. Love is, looks like the cross. God is cross-like love. And, and that's what's revealed uh, on the cross. But only when we can look through the ugly surface and, and, and see what's going on behind the scenes. In fact, the surface uh, is, is, is revolting and ugly because it mirrors the ugliness of sin and uh, of, of the judgment that Christ bore. But it's also beautiful, supremely beautiful, because of our faith knowledge that God was willing to step into that. Now, it, it, so here in, in the central revelation, God reveals himself by taking on human sin and taking on the judgment for that sin. And, and if that reveals what God's really like, it reveals what God's always been like, including what God was like when he breathed the Bible. And so it doesn't make sense to ask the question, where else might we find God uh, appearing ugly on the surface? Uh, and where else might we find uh, portraits of God where it won't be the surface that reveals God. The, the surface will rather reflect the ugliness of the sin that God's bearing. Uh, but uh, here we have to use the same faith we exercise to see the cross as the supreme revelation of God. Let's exercise that same faith, and, and we can see God stooping this distance to bear, to, to, to bear uh, the sin of his people. And so when I am reading the Bible, I'm just aware that when I come upon ugly stuff, uh, stuff that is beneath the, what Jesus reveals about God, um, that to that degree, it will reflect not... The surface doesn't reveal what God's like. The surface rather reveals uh, what God's people are like and the way God's people view him. But what reveals what God is like is that God nevertheless remained in covenant with these people and was willing to bear their sin. 
and appear this way in the, in, in the uh, record of God's heavenly missionary activity, which is how I describe the Bible. Um, and so all those ugly portraits of God, I think, I, I see them as testaments that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That what Jesus did on the cross, uh, he's always been doing in, in various ways. And so the ugliness of these portraits points to the ugliness of the cross. Uh, but the beauty of, 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 of that God would step into this, the beauty of what faith sees behind these ugly portraits, well, that points to the beauty of the cross. And now I can begin to understand how all scripture bears witness to the cross. Uh, it all ultimately points to him, either by having beauty on the surface uh, and pointing the beauty of the cross, or ugliness on the surface, pointing the ugliness of the cross. In the latter case, the beauty is what faith sees going on behind the scenes. That, in a nutshell, is uh, my take on the That's a big nutshell. It's, yeah, it's, but it's I guess it has concept. to be a big nutshell because it's a big concept. Well, okay, let me, okay, I can imagine someone asking, see, I, I track with what you're saying, but I can imagine someone asking something like this. In the New Testament, what you're saying seems more obvious than in the old. In fact, because the old, the, the ugliness seems to come from God's own mouth. Right. So, uh, and, I, and I think, and I've read you, and I, I, I'm, I'm pretty sure I know how you address that, but again, I think the listeners would really like to hear how, how we can call something ugly in the Old Testament that is purported to come from the mouth of God. Let's sure. say in the book of Deuteronomy. Okay, well, let's go back to the cross. Um, how could something beautiful... Uh, be revealed through something as horrific as a sin-bearing, curse-bearing, crucified criminal. <laughs> Jesus appears guilty, and he's bearing the sin of the world. Here God reveals his supreme beauty uh, by taking on supreme ugliness. And, 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 and so God reveals his holiness by bearing our sin and his, uh, you know, his beauty by taking on our ugliness. Um, why would we expect that the, the written record of his missionary activity uh, that he breathed, uh, and that he breathed for the purpose of pointing to the cross, why, why, why would we think it would be free of ugliness and free of human sin and free of human faults? Um, the, the, the idea that, that if people sometimes argue that, look, if, 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 if the Bible's a God-breathed book, it must reflect his perfection because God's perfect, so he must breathe perfectly. And that assumption, which has been so prevalent in American evangelicalism, has led more people to lose faith in the Bible the minute they start reading the Bible because you read the Bible and it's not a quote-unquote perfect book. Uh, you, you find it has you know, an ancient cosmology and all sorts of other you know, very human things. Uh, but instead of assuming we know what it's like for God to breathe, um, that, that, that view assumes that God breathes unilaterally. So the perfection of God gets breathed out in, into the Bible. But if you look at the cross, how did God breathe that revelation? And I think we should take all of our bearings about what God's like on the cross. Let's not assume things. That's how we get into trouble. And on the cross, God breathed that revelation both by acting toward us, because it was his, his plan and he became a human and all the rest, but it also involved God allowing people to act on him. Um, you know, all the violence that was done to Jesus was done by people who were operating under the influence of principalities and powers. God the Father never lifted a finger against Jesus. All the violence came by humans. But God allowed humans to act toward him. And then when, when Jesus bears the sin of the world, he's allowing the sin of humanity to act towards him and condition how he appears in this revelation. And insofar as, as the cross is ugly, it reflects God humbly allowing humans and the principles and powers to act toward him. 
But insofar as the cross is beautiful, it reflects God acting toward us. If that's how God breathed the cross revelation, why not read the Bible? Since that this is the God that same God that re, that breathed the Bible, why not read the Bible with that understanding? And when I read it that way, I find all sorts of confirmations that that is in fact the right way to read it. So I'm not surprised when we come upon horrific portraits of God uh, doing what basically what any other ancient Near Eastern God would do. Um, that, that reflects a fallen, culturally conditioned perspective of the biblical author. Uh, that, that, that's not what God's like. That's what God's people are like. But since I know from the cross uh, how God can reveal himself, I will have faith and look through that. And it, now I will be amazed at the beauty of a God who would stoop so low as to relate to people on that basis. Um, he, 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 he never lobotomizes people into thinking the truth. He's not a coercive God. If the, you know, Paul says the cross is the power of God. And, and the cross is anything but coercive power. It's, it's influential love. And so God then will influence people as much as he can towards the truth. But since he's not going to coerce them into having true ideas about him, he has to bear the sin of their false ideas about him. And that reveals the beauty of God, that he would stoop to that low, stay in covenant with these people, even though they think he's capable of commanding them to slaughter people as an act of religious devotion. So I, I'm just trying to to follow it sounds like so then the, the logic of that is that in the cross jesus is being acted upon or uh i'm trying to understand i guess the connection between the actions of other people toward jesus in the narrative of the crucifixion and the actions of the authors of the old testament and their portrayals of God. It sounds like you're trying to m making that connection. Maybe can you sure. say a different way to make that connection? Well, okay, God's active insofar as the cross is beautiful, <clears throat> but God's passive insofar as it's ugly. Uh, because all the ugliness is stuff that we afflicted on him. And, and, mm -hmm. and, and as, there, you know, as he's bearing our sin, he's bearing this, this includes all the sin of the whole world. It, it includes all the ugly pictures of God that we've had. It includes... The, the, the Jewish uh, false, false views of the Messiah that they had. I mean, he's getting crucified because he didn't play the role that, that a Messiah was supposed to play. He was supposed to come down here and kick Roman butt. Instead, he gets himself crucified. Um, and, and so uh, the, God's a recipient of all that ugliness. Um, and that that's how God reveals his, the beauty of his true self, that he's willing to step in and become the recipient of all that. Um, and that's what God has always been like. That's what God was like when he breathed the Bible. So we, we should... Read the Bible, I submit, but I'm proposing here, in a cross-centered way, knowing that God is active, um, uh, moving towards his people, but there's also a point where then he humbly allows himself to be passive. He's a recipient of, uh, of the biblical author's fallen mindset and cultural conditions and all the rest. And, you know, the thing is, is that everyone grants this to a point. Um, I mean, because all the biblical, all the books of the Bible have their own different styles, and they reflect the culture and the limitations and the, and the personalities and the writing styles of the biblical authors. Sometimes they explicitly reflect the ignorance of the biblical authors. Like in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, um, Paul's going out about how there shouldn't be any divisions, and he doesn't want anyone saying, you know, I'm a follower of Paul. And then he says, I thank God I didn't baptize any of you when I came to Corinth. Then he pauses and he goes, wait, wait, I did baptize the household of Stephanus, but beyond that, I didn't baptize anyone. Well, actually, I don't know who I baptized or not, but the point is, don't you, there shouldn't be anyone saying, I, I'm a Paul. 
Well, I think God's got a good memory, but Paul obviously doesn't. And and the the the, the frail memory of Paul now affect it conditions what is written in the Word. But it's all God breathed. Uh, it's just that to say it's God breathed that doesn't just mean that it's all directly from God. It also involves God allowing the personhood of the people that He's breathing through and to to act upon Him. So so the, is it the when we bring the cross into it? Is it about misidentification? So just as the, the Roman soldiers and the, some of the Jewish leaders would have misidentified who Jesus was, you know, you talked about him uh, as a traitor, as a criminal, this misidentification God allows um, in speaking on, on God's behalf. In the same way, the authors of the Old Testament are allowed to misidentify God. Uh, is, that the, is that tracking with that? Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I would rather say misrepresent God. Uh, they're doing the best they could given, you know, their capacity to receive truth. Um, and, and this is how they see God. Uh, now, the Spirit's always working to, for God to reveal as much of his true self as possible. And sometimes there's breakthroughs. Um, and so, I mean, you find some beautiful pictures of God in the Old Testament. Um, it, it's, it, that's why this isn't really a New Testament, Old Testament divide. It, it's, a, it's a beautiful portrait of God versus ugly portraits of God divide. And, um, uh, you know, so, you know, no one in the ancient thought of their God as the bride and themselves as the groom, but you find that in the Bible. And what's really interesting is that it, when you find those beautiful portraits of God, those Christ-like portraits of God, those portraits strongly contrast with the portraits of the gods that you find throughout the ancient Near East. But when you find God portrayed as a, as a, a warrior, sometimes as a, I, for honest, a bloodthirsty warrior, my, my sword is thirsty for blood, it, you know, and I, it, my arrows will devour your flesh. And, and there the, you're getting a portrait of God that's very much influenced by this, uh, this, this uh, cannibalistic warrior deity imagery that comes out of uh, Ugarit. Um, insofar as God's portrayed in violent terms, he very much resembles the gods of the ancient Near East. Like, I don't think there's any area where the Bible more, is more reflective of cultural conditioning than when they have violent portraits of God. And that's kind of another way that you can uh, you know, confirm this as a criteria for what is and is not countercultural. Um, so the spirit breaks through at times, but at other times um, that the spirit is, is squelched, which shouldn't be surprising because throughout the, whole, the Old Testament you have this motif about how the Jewish people are a stiff-necked people and are spiritually dull. Several times it says there's no knowledge of God in the land, not even among their leaders. Well, that's surely got to condition the, the portraits of God that get recorded in, in, in Scripture. Hmm. So, yeah, there, there's yeah. misrepresentation there. Yeah. Uh, okay, well, in, um, in Cross Vision, yes. you, have, you have a very interesting paradox that I'd like to dig in with you a little bit, and I think it is interesting. On the one hand, you know, we can't just reject the Old Testament. No. Because... I don't think you can reject any of it. Right, because, you know, you've got, basically, the New Testament doesn't make sense without it. Uh, I'd throw in it doesn't make sense with a lot of Second Temple Judaism either, but, you know, the foundation of that is the Old Testament, and the New Testament authors cite the Old Testament 300-something times. It's just like, Jesus, they can't move without it, you know. And Jesus, you know, quotes it all over the place, left exactly. and right. right. Says that so it's, it's important, right? So, on the one hand... We can't reject it. On the other hand, there are things about the Old Testament that Jesus repudiates. Right. Things like, I think you mentioned Sabbath or, 
you know, dietary regulations coming out of Mark chapter. The, the classic one was eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. That's commanded three times in the Old Testament. Right. Says, You've heard that said, but I say, and you turn the other cheek, love your enemies and all the rest. So how, okay, how then, I think, again, I can see this question coming up from people just reading that. They, they might ask, how can something from the Old Testament be repudiated by Jesus, but yet Jesus still endorses the whole? That, see, that is the question that led me down this track. Um, okay. Where I, I on, the, on the authority of Jesus' revelation of God, oh, on, on the authority of Jesus, I have to embrace the Old Testament as divinely inspired, and not only that, but as somehow pointing to him, and more specifically pointing to, his, uh, to the cross, which is, uh, the, the, I think, the, the through line of his entire ministry. Um, when I refer to the cross, I'm not referring to the cross as, over and against the rest of his life, but as the culmination of, of what his whole life was about. But, so I have to accept the Old Testament. On the other hand, also on the authority of Jesus, um, I can't accept parts of it. Some of it he tells me not to. Uh, you know, to be a follower of Jesus, I have to disobey the command to uh, I have an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Because he says, love your enemies and bless those who persecute, that you may be children of your Father in heaven, Matthew 5.45. So the criteria for being a child of, of God, according to Jesus, is that I disobey the Old Testament command to have an eye for an eye and tooth for tooth. But even beyond that, I can't accept portions, I can't accept those portraits of God insofar as they conflict with what Jesus reveals about God. And I can't imagine a portrait more conflicting with what Jesus reveals about God than the various portraits that, that depict God as saying, go slaughter everybody, man, woman, child, infant, animal, uh, and do it as an act of devotion to me. So yeah, that, that is the conundrum that led me down this path. See, mm -hmm. I, I think if we, if we keep our eyes fixed on the cross, we have an answer for this. How do I both accept and reject the same passage? And the answer I'm submitting to you is the same way we accept and reject the cross. Uh, we, we, we reject the sin that Jesus bore. That, that, we're supposed to revolt against that. We're supposed to revolt against violence and everything else that is contrary to, to that. So the ugliness represents what we're supposed to revolt against. But the beauty is what we, by faith, see going on behind the scenes that God was willing to step into that. So also, as I read the Bible, insofar as I find material that I have to reject, um, well, that, that, that ugliness is stuff I'm supposed to revolt against. I'm, I must reject it too. But the beauty of the passage is that it reminds me that God has always been willing to stoop this low to stay in covenantal solidarity with his people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, as uh, one of my seminary professors put it, and I, I threw this a few times into uh, the Bible tells me so, God lets his children tell the story from the point of view yes. that they're at, what they see, what they can comprehend. And, you know, we have a situation with the gospel that challenges some of those portraits of God, as you say. It, it strikes me, though, too, I mean, this is the universal problem of, uh, it's, it's hard to find a solution to this that's directly advocated in the New Testament. This requires theology, requires thinking hermeneutically, you know, about the nature of interpretation yeah, sure. and all that kind of stuff. And that, that, I mean, that sets us on a little adventure, doesn't it? Well, it does, um, but it's no different than every other theological task. I mean, right. you don't find the Trinity explicitly mentioned in the New Testament, but as people worked out the implications of it, they came upon the Trinity. Um, and, and, he, and so I, I argue in, in both the cross vision and the more academic uh, two-volume work, Crucifixion of the Warrior God, 
that there are precedents in the New Testament that are pointing in this direction. Um, you know, so for example, uh, one of the things I argue is that whenever there's violence involved in a divine judgment, uh, it's, it's brought about by agents other than God, uh, whether they're human or sometimes they're, they're fallen uh, cosmic powers, uh, often personified as hostile waters the way the ancient history people did. Um, well, it's interesting that Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 10, um, he, he, he's given lessons out of the Old Testament, and, and he says at one point, now don't be like the grumblers in the Old Testament who were destroyed by the destroyer, or who were killed by the destroyer, or the destroying angel. Uh, well, what's interesting, and most scholars argue that he's referring there to Korah's rebellion in Numbers 16, since that's the most famous episode of grumblers being judged, um, and, and if you read number 16, you don't find any destroying angel. At least it's not obvious. Mm -hmm. But neither do you find a destroying angel in any of the other judgments that, that were brought on grumblers. Um, and so he, Paul here, uh, for whatever reasons, he, he, he had that intuition, that inspired intuition, that, that there was some other agent involved in that judgment. Now, when I went back to the text and began to read it in that from, you know, with, with that knowledge, both the cross tells me there must be another agent involved, and now Paul confirms that. Well, I, and this was, to me, the most surprising aspect of this research journey that I've been on the last 10 years. It just blew me away. But I found many scholars who would argue that there was, in fact, other agents involved in that judgment. Um, for example, it says the earth opened its mouth at, to swallow the uh, Korah's Rebellion. Um, well, we read that as a metaphor, you know, like uh, God caused an earthquake. We assume God did it. Uh, but, but a lot of scholars argue, and none of these are evangelical, by the way. Evangelicals tend to have a, you know, a theological agenda to protect the Bible from things that they think are too outside the boundaries. But uh, scholars who aren't, aren't uh, whose scholarship isn't, isn't governed by some doctrinal commitment, uh, they argue things like, like um, you know, in the ancient Near East, they argue that the, early, the, the, the original audience would have understood that literally. Uh, the earth was considered a living being. Uh, or some scholars argue that, that, uh, it, that in, you know, in Canaan, they had a deity that lived in, in, just under the surface of the earth, the god of the underworld. His name was Mot, the god of death. And, and some hymns uh, sung to him say that he has jaws reaching up to the surface of, of the earth and can devour people alive. Um, and, and they argue that that is what is happening with Korah's Rebellion. Uh, and when the people run, it's interesting, they, they run, and, and when they see this judgment happening, they say, let's run away lest the earth also devour us. Uh, they're not afraid of Yahweh, they're afraid of this earth. Um, and, and uh, yeah, so uh, there, it, it's, there are th principles there, I think, and some, it's enough precedent that we can kind of build on. And that's what you see happening in the early church. Um, you know, Origen and, and Gregory Nyssa and John Cassian and a little bit uh, degree of Justin Martyr, they were looking at the Old Testament and looking at ways of interpreting it such that it didn't conflict with what they knew about God and Jesus. In fact, ways that would point to it. Uh, and since it was kind of customary in their culture to allegorize things, they usually use allegory to do that and other forms of typology and whatnot. Um, sadly, that project, see, they were going in the right direction, I think, but that project was sadly brought to a very abrupt halt in the 4th and 5th centuries. And the reason is because uh, when the church came into political power with Constantine and then took responsibility for running the Roman Empire, uh, now it had to come to grips with using violence because um, you can't run an empire unless you're willing to you know, punish wrongdoers inside the borders and kill en threatening enemies outside the borders. And now the violent portraits of God became, that used to be problematic and that people were struggling with, now they became advantageous. 
because now you could appeal to them for precedent when you needed to motivate people to go out and kill. Um, and that, sadly, is the role. That's the primary role these portraits have played throughout history. Yeah. Go-to banner whenever you need to motivate Christians to kill. And, and that's why they're still to this day so protected. Um, people, you know, sadly, a lot, of, a lot of religious people want their sacred violence. Uh, and so they safeguard those portraits. I'm just kind of saying, let's get back to the early church project. Right. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Well, yeah, and I, I think that's a very wise move. And you know, another layer that I see, Greg, is not only is it part of a church tradition to, let's say, savor those violent passages, but it's also a way of protecting a certain kind of inerrancy where people are, I mean, I, I, I talk to people who are, less bothered by taking the violence passages as accurate depictions of God, then, you know, they're, they're more bothered by that possibly not being true and giving up inerrancy than by it being. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Does that make sense? Am I just sort of babbling here? Yeah, so. No, no, you're right. It, that, yeah. it, it bothers them more to give up a doctrine of inerrancy than it bothers them that God would command the slaughtering of babies, you know, uh, mm -hmm. and, something wrong with that picture um something does not compute and um, usually it's relegated to the mystery of god and but but, but you know what else is interesting peter is that that um you know throughout church history uh theologians have been willing to go to enormous lengths to reinterpret scripture to, so that it aligns with their particular doctrine or their particular conceptions of god for example in the classical classical ideal of god god is altogether immutable meaning he never changes in any respect He's altogether impassable, meaning he doesn't suffer any strong emotions or any emotions at all. Uh, he certainly never suffers. Uh, well, you know, it's hard to read. When you read the Bible, you find a God who's responsive and interactive and, you know, changes his mind at times and, and is deeply affected by what people do and grieves and suffers. And, and what does the cross reveal if not a God who's willing to suffer? But in the classical tradition, they're willing to take all that and to say, well, that was just anthropomorphized. That was phenomenological language. Uh, that... That was God accommodating us because we can't understand God the way he actually is. So he kind of comes down and speaks our level. So it looks as if God actually moves with us in time and God is actually affected by us, but everybody doesn't really. So there just have been very willing to go to extreme lengths to, to you know, reinterpret scripture to conform to this theology. But when it came to the violent portraits of God, damn it, those are literal. Yeah. Uh, you know, <laughs> we don't even notice that we're doing that because we do it automatically. Like those have got to be literal. Uh, the early church had it the other way around. Uh, no, th those are the ones that aren't literal. Right. Uh, well, it, yeah, the, you know, the impassibility of God, et cetera, et cetera. If I can get on my soapbox for 10 seconds, so much of this is rooted in pre-Christian developments in Judaism. Oh, yeah. People don't realize, the church doesn't really, I thought church, what am I talking about? The, the kinds of people we probably hang around with, they don't realize how much the language we take for granted about being true and even biblical language about God is actually very much a, a, a function of the Greek culture 
Absolutely. That a lot of our theology came from, which doesn't make it bad. It just, we just had to be. That's a soapbox too, man. We're sharing the same soapbox. I mean, that, yeah. that's, uh, that's actually. The Is there room for both of us? I hope so. I hope okay. so. I you think bet, so. You better get the first. No, uh, that's my, in fact, I was working on that book. Um, I, I was actually under contract with IVP to have a book on the topic in 2002. <laughs> it's like I'm being a little behind schedule. And then I took a break to start working on this book. And then I took a break from that to work on for several hours. I have ADD, by the way. And so um, now I'm getting back to that after having this uh, 10, 12-year hiatus. But yeah, I, you're, it comes out of the Hellenistic Philosophical Project. And I understand why the Greeks posited this one that is uh, you know, beyond all sequence and that is can't be affected and never changes in respect. But then for the early church begin to appropriate that and try to, I think 95 or more percent of all the so-called mysteries of theology and classical theology are the result of trying to squish this immutable, atemporal, impassable being onto the biblical narrative. Mm-hmm. And you cover over the contradiction with a, in such a way. Oh yes, he's immutable in such a way that he's not. And he never changes in such a way that he could become flesh. And Never suffers, but in such a way that he suffers on the cross. And yeah, it's mystery, which I hear. Mystery. You know, if only we ruled the world, Greg, I think we wouldn't have these problems. Well, let's go and conquer it, all right? Let's do it in Jesus' name. Let's go be violent and so, do that. Be violent in the name of God. So when you, t- when you come into your glory, can I sit on your right hand and Jared sit on your <laughs> right hand? I thought I was going to be asking you that question. <laughs> um, I, you know what? There's, there's, can I ask you this interesting phrase you use? And I hope I pronounced it right. Divine Aikido? Oh, yeah, Aikido. Yeah, yeah explain that. That's, that's really an interesting concept you have. And okay, yeah. So I, to talk about. And I, I have to tip my hat to Bruxy Cavi here, who uh, turned me on to this word. I was, I, I, I was I, first time I met him, I was talking about jujitsu, divine jujitsu, because I thought that was the most nonviolent uh, form of martial arts. But then he says, no, jujitsu is just a prelim to Aikido. And so I look into Aikido, and it captures it perfectly. Well, in Aikido, it's a martial arts, it's a pacifist martial arts technique where you, um, uh, you never use aggression against the person who's the aggressor towards you. You rather just deflect their aggression back on them. So they end up uh, you know, hitting themselves and, and, and harming themselves, but you don't do it as a, as a means of trying to punish them. You're, you're trying to enlighten them, uh, to mirror back to them, the evil that's in their heart, so they might then see it and repent, which is a very New Testament kind of concept. Um, well, I argue that this is God's mode of bringing judgment and of, of uh, ultimately vanquishing evil, um, uh, that he turns evil back on itself and, uh, and, and implodes. And so you find this on the cross, um, that you know, Satan and the powers are involved in the orchestration of the crucifixion, and yet the crucifixion is what unemploys them. You know, it's Colossians chapter 2, verses 15, that, you know, everything that was written against us was nailed with Christ on the cross. And um, in doing that, he disempowered the principalities and powers and made an open mockery of them. And so he, he, he takes the evil that was intended against him and just kind of turns it back. Uh, and that's what causes the kingdom of darkness to, to self-implode. And then as I begin to read the Bible through that lens, because I think we should always read the Bible through that lens, I begin to find it all over the place. I mean, I got like 60 pages of, of, uh, of scripture where you find things like uh, the Lord saying, uh, you know, the, your, the violence you intended for others will recoil back on your, your heads. Uh, the trap that you laid for others, you yourself are going to fall in it. Uh, your, your own sins are going to punish you, you know, and, and the, the motif goes on and on and on. And, uh, and so I, I think that that's the true nature of God's judgment. 
Sometimes in the Old Testament, they saw that. Uh, they got glimpses of it. Other times they didn't, and they think that God punishes the way ancient Near Eastern people thought he punishes and the way people throughout history have thought it. And that's it. Since we use violence to punish people, well, God must use violence. And, um, and that's, that's consistent then with, you know, in Romans chapter 1, the wrath of God is not God throwing lightning bolts down, exactly. but giving people up to the exactly. consequences of their actions or something. Exactly. Which presupposes that up to that point, God had been trying to keep them from the consequences of, of, of their, their, their uh, right. decisions. Uh, but there comes a point when, if God sees that, that his mercy is simply enabling people to sink deeper and deeper into sin, as mercy is actually harming people, then God's got no choice but to withdraw that protection and to let them go down the course, the road they've chosen, which is a road that has got death intrinsic to it. And, and, and I make the case uh, in, in uh, both books that, that in the uh, Hebrew mindset, and this is also in the New Testament, uh, punishment, the seeds of punishment are built into the sin itself. Uh, punishment is intrinsic to, to sin itself. And so, as it says in James 1, you know, once you give in to temptation, you give birth to sin, which when it's fully grown, gives birth to death. It, the, 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 the line between sin and punishment is as natural as the connection between conception and birth. So God just needs to let that happen, and then judgment, judgment comes about. Yeah. Well, well, violence is one of those topics in the Bible that really gets us into reframing a lot of things. And, you know, I don't want this has come off the wrong way, but there's a lot of re-education, I guess, that has to happen with, let's say, the average Christian out there for how we think about these things. And there are a lot of people talking about this topic, and I think... Obviously, it's an important one. So much comes together. So many questions people have about just the nature of God. You know, I, what is God like? You have to address violence at some point. That to, me, that to me is the main issue. Is that, and that's the main motivation behind the books. Is that that uh, you know your your relationship with God is always mediated through your mental conception of God, and so your love and passion for God will never outrun the lovability of your picture of God, and right. and so many people. You know, if, if, if Jesus is just part of your picture of God, and he's combined with all these violent pictures of God, well, you're going to have, that, that can't help but compromise your love and passion for him, uh, and, and, and the, it can't help but compromise the beauty of your own life, because we always become the portrait of God that we worship. And so yeah. I think it's so important that we purify our pictures of God and, and get them to line up with the God who's fully revealed in the crucified Christ. Great. Well, listen, Greg, thank you so much. We're coming to the end of our time here, and maybe we can sign off by you letting our listeners know like, where they can find you on maybe social media or website and stuff like that. Sure, sure. Uh, I run a ministry called Renew.org, but it's with a K, R-E-K-N-E-W, because we're all about rethink everything you thought you already knew. Very clever. And I'm on Twitter. You can just look at Greg, Greg uh, underscore Boyd, and uh, that's me. Uh, and I am pastor at Woodland Hills Church, and you can find my sermons on our, uh, on our website, whchurch.org. And the books we were talking about are Cross Vision and Crucifixion of the Warrior God, and they're both put up by Fortress. Right. And you've got a few other books, too, they can find there on your website as well. One or two. As yeah. do you. 
Yeah. <laughs> well, this, it's not a competition. It's not a violent competition here, Greg. Okay? Okay. You say need to so. let go of that. Need to let go of that violence. <laughs> hey, listen, Greg, thanks so much for being on the podcast. We had a great time. It was a pleasure. We haven't spoken in many years, you and I, not since the BioLogons conference. I, it's, been, it's been quite a while. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. Yeah. So, hey, it was good talking with you. Thanks for inviting me on. It was a blast. You bet. See ya. Thanks, guys. Bye. Thanks for listening, normal people. Be sure to check out Greg Boyd online at renew.org. That's R-E-K-N-E-W.org. And you can find out all sorts of information about Greg. All you want to know about Greg Boyd, right there on that website. And uh, you also see links there to his books, the ones we mentioned here, Crucifixion of the Warrior God and Cross Vision. Uh, If you want to uh, connect with me, also you can find me online at PeteEnds.com. Or if you want to do more typing, TheBibleForNormalPeople.com takes you to the same place. And there you can find out all sorts of information about books that I'm writing. And if you join my newsletter, you can find out about a book that I'm working on now and give me some feedback on it. I love getting feedback from people about projects that are in process. So you can do that there too. And also, if you'd like to support the work of The Bible for Normal People, Uh, You can do so by joining our online community at Patreon. And we deeply value, the uh, again, the input and the partnership we have with so many people out there to help make uh, this, this vision that Jared and I have for discussing questions of Bible and creating communities. Uh, where people can uh, be honest and authentic about their struggles with faith that are oftentimes generated simply by reading the Bible carefully. So that's what we're about. And you can find us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash the Bible for normal people. Thanks again, folks, and we will talk to you next time. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.